Um, I did this in first service, hadn't intended to, but I'll do it with you as well. I want you to go to Romans chapter 11, and I just want to give you a sense. Dr. Sareff alluded several times to this issue of provocation to jealousy, and some of you may not know contextually really what he was talking about, and I wanted to give you some more context there. So Romans chapter 11 and then verse 11. As we saw, 700 700 times God says he was going to restore the people of Israel back to their land. Now, as I've said before, Dr. Sareff spoke last week, look, if they hadn't come back to their land, I probably would have allegorized that or said that was just figurative language and all that. But the fact is they have, and they're back in the land. It's an epic fulfillment of prophecy, epic fulfillment of prophecy against every probability you could imagine, not too different than the creation itself just against all odds, and yet they are. But there's purpose in this, and Paul is having to talk to the Gentiles in the church at Rome and say, look, you guys are missing the mark on this. You're getting arrogant. You're becoming arrogant against the Jewish people, and I know they're persecuting you right now, but there's coming a day when they're going to be restored spiritually. Listen to his argument here, verse 11. He says, I say then, they did not stumble, speaking of Israel, so as to fall, did they? It's a rhetorical question, and he answers it emphatically. May it never be. In other words, Israel didn't, by rejecting Messiah, and as you heard Dr. Sareff, a fifth-generation Babylonian Jew last week say, we as a nation, him speaking, we as a nation, as a nation rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But not all Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And it's important to understand that. There's always been a remnant, and we get this, that's part of Paul's argument back in Romans 9 and 10. So he's saying, look, they didn't reject, and in fact, God has such a specific plan for Israel that it's, it's remarkable, but you can't become arrogant, and not only is that plan going to affect them, it's going to affect the whole world. Now, here's the line of thinking just so you understand it. So it says, may it never be, by their transgression, in other words, as Israel rejected Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Dr. Sareff alluded a couple of times last week to jealousy. He said, my friend, these Gentiles that I met made me jealous. They knew more about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than I did. And I'm supposed to be a Jew who understands the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I didn't have anything relational. And they were talking about relationship and actually talking to God. And we just had these prayer books and things. We didn't really talk and know and have intimacy with the creator of the, relation, uh, with the, creator of the universe, and my Gentile friends did. And that was his own words last week. And by the way, if you haven't seen it, go back and watch it on live stream. We already have it archived, and please go back and watch that. It says, now, if their transgression... Be riches for the world. Now, stop for a second. This is going to play into what we're going to talk about this morning as we talk about the times and seasons of our lives. Do you realize that Israel, had they embraced Jesus as the Messiah, what would have happened? Well, it would have stopped and Jesus could have just, they could have set up the kingdom and it would have been for Israel. But in fact, and you see this in Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen, Stephen is stoned and it was like a dandelion and they just went, and just as Jesus had commanded them, start in Jerusalem, but then go to Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. They needed a push, and the push was persecution. 
And as a result, what happened is the gospel went around the world. And it started and just it left Israel because of the stoning of Stephen. The church was scattered after that. And Jesus still wants us to be scattered and not to hold in our little holy huddles here on Sunday and just all and everybody just have potlucks and fiestas. Oh, fiestas are great. I love it. I can't wait. But we're not just going to have our little potlucks. We're going to scatter. We're going to come here. We're going to be energized by, the, by Jesus. And then we're going to scatter all over all the valley. And then, you know, April, May comes and you scatter again. And you go all over the country. Some of you even in various places around the world. So he said, look, if by, if by their transgressions it's riches for the world, verse 12, and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? A little bit later, he quotes Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20. He says, and a redeemer will come to Israel, speaking of the Messiah. See, Jesus came the first time, but Jesus, can I just tell you, is coming back to the Middle East in very, very powerful ways in our lifetime. Church of the Red Door is now partnered with that. Now, let's finish this thing out. He says uh, down here in verse 15, now look at 15. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, I can tell you right now, there were, and, I, and I've studied this in the past, uh, various Puritan thoughts that really the foundations of America, much of, the, much of the thinking of, not all, but most of those Puritans, where they did believe that one day there would be a spiritual revolution that would happen among the Jewish people. Now, at that time, obviously, it was hundreds of years before Israel was even a nation again, but they were saying, no, there's something that's going to happen. It's going to happen in Israel, and this time when it happens in Israel, it's going to spread all over the world. It's going to be a blessing for the whole world. It was a blessing when they... Think about this. I think this was Paul's heart. If it was a blessing to the world when they rejected Jesus... Think what kind of a blessing it's going to be to the world when they say Jesus was the Messiah. Can you imagine that? And can you imagine a church at the Red Door gets to be part of, I think, the most powerful ministry in the Middle East right now, the largest seminary in the Middle East. We, we support them. We're going to encourage them. They come and they talk to us. We can go there and hang out with them. For those of you who have the privilege to go to Israel with us in December, which will be my privilege to take you and show you around in the land, We'll go and we'll be with them. I'm hoping we can even film a uh, film a Sunday a service and then live stream it back here. So those who can't will get actually get to watch watch the service from Israel, kind of like we just watched the worship from Israel. Isn't that cool? In your lifetime, this is powerful. Okay, now I'm going to use a little bit of that in what we're going to talk about next. Two weeks ago, before uh, Dr. Saref came, we taught we were talking about times and seasons, and we were looking at a character sketch through King David. And we left him when Eliab, his brother, was mocking him, ridiculing him, and where are those piddly sheep that you've come down from? And remember, David, at the, ad, at the admonition of his own father, came down carrying a bunch of cheese. He was a cheese carrier. He was a complete nobody, although he had already been anointed king of Israel. Imagine. And yet the, the nation didn't know it yet. Certainly Saul didn't know that he'd already been anointed king. He had him killed. One of the old sage, beautiful commentators of old, Matthew Henry, listen to what he says about the season of David's life that he was in now, and this will be the case for you as well. Listen, commentating on 1 Samuel 17, he says, Jesse, that's David's father, little thought of sending his son to the army at that critical juncture, but the wise God orders actions and affairs. 
That's huge. God is sovereign. So, as to serve his designs in times of general formality and lukewarmness, every degree of zeal, which implies readiness to go further or to venture more in the cause of God than others, will be blamed as pride and ambition. Let me just tell you something. If you say, if you stand up one day and say, you know what? As for me and my household, we're going to follow the Lord and we're going to start a Bible study at our country club or we're going to start a, a rooted group in our home. Well, I've never done that. And well, you know, the Pastor Paul's and Pastor Mary, they said, hey, you can do this. We, 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 we know you can do this. God's a, a, you're going to do great with this. And then you tell and then somebody from around your neighborhood or somebody that you used to watch, listen to you curse after you hit a bad shot on the golf course or maybe have one too many at the, at the clubhouse after the round. You know, can you believe that guy who does he think he is going to go out and lead a bible study can you believe that's just going to come at you it will whether it's whether it's corroborated with any evidence or not listen to what he says he says it was a trial of david's meekness patience and constancy he had right and reason on his side and did not render railing for railing with a soft answer, he turned away his brother's wrath. That's what we saw last two weeks ago. This conquest of his own passion was more honorable than that of Goliath. Those who undertake great and public services, you really want to follow Jesus, must not think it strange if they are spoken ill of and opposed by those from whom they expect support and assistance. They must humbly go on with their work in the face not only of the enemy's threats, but of friends, catch this, friends, slights and suspicions. It's a little bit why Jesus was able to say, hyperbolically obviously, you must hate father and mother and brother and sister on account of me. In other words, relative to me, you can't even be concerned about what your own family's thinking, your closest friends. He's gone off the deep end, man. That guy's gotten religion. All he did is talk about Jesus all the time. He's wearing me out. Look, you're going to get that. It's going to happen to you. But you need to understand that your next season, right now, your next, listen to me, church, your next season is being determined by how your heart responds to accusation and suspicion. Do you understand that? Your next season is based upon the season that you're living now. Or you can fail again and then what? Take another lap around the wilderness. You can do that if you want. Remember, a day is a thousand years to God. A thousand years is as one day. He's not sitting around going, hey, I got to take a coffee break. I need Jeff to go ahead and hurry up and finish this season of his life so we can move on because I have plans for him. He's happy to wait you out. He may have told you something that you didn't obey him on 10 years ago, and he's still waiting for you to obey him for what he told you 10 years ago. Do you understand that? That's critical for us to understand the season and the time that we're living in. What time are you living in? What season are you being prepared for? Well, you don't know the season exactly ahead of you. You may have some insight, and Issachar, as we saw, the tribe of Issachar did, but you need to understand the season in your now, and if it's a season of preparation, trust me, walk through it, walk humbly, walk meekly, love Jesus. Don't be concerned about making everything right and getting justice. You don't want justice anyway. I promise you, you don't want justice and neither do I. So let's press on. I want you to 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's where we finished. Eliab was not too happy. 
1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to actually get into the battle. But before we do, there was one last little thing that happened that is a nugget of truth that will blow your mind. And if you get a hold of this, it can change your life. You say, Jeff, you get really excited about stuff every week. Exactly. This stuff has, has an opportunity. These words have an opportunity to absolutely transform the way you think about life and as a result, transform your life. First, you transform the way you think about life, and then your life is transformed. Your life doesn't just change, and then you adapt the way you think after your life changes. Typically, you change the way you think before your life changes. Now, catch this. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 38 and 39. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk. For he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I haven't tested them. And then catch this. And David took them off. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Now imagine, we don't know how big David was, but chances are he's, you know, maybe he's a 30, 38 short, you know, jacket. And Saul was probably a 44 long. Saul was a head taller than anybody else. And here they are. And then imagine this. David starts, okay, here's the, the helmet, all right, he puts it on, and the eye holes go down to about right here, you know, and he's trying to look out, he can't see, and the stuff's dragging around, and he's got this gigantic sword and everything, and he starts, he goes, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. There's a gem for you in this. Many of you know that Billy Graham died this last week, 99 years old, 99 years old, and uh I, I'm, no, I'm no Billy Graham. I, if I tried to put Billy Graham's armor on, I would have no chance to wear Billy Graham's armor. But I haven't been called to wear Billy Graham's armor. And guess what? Billy Graham wasn't called to wear my armor. And you're not called to wear my armor. And I'm not called to wear yours. Look, God has uniquely positioned you. If you look back at the Apostle Paul, wow, two-thirds of the New Testament. Billy Graham didn't do that. Two-thirds of the New Testament. He's responsible for two-thirds of the New Testament. Who was he? He was persecuting the church and everything. How can God? Well, first of all, it just says mercy, mercy, mercy. God loves to use the unlovable, the unusable in his kingdom. He loves that because it brings glory to him. But there was something very unique about Saul who would become the apostle Paul. He also had his Roman citizenship. You say, why, would that, why was that important? He had that way before he understood that that was ever. He, he, didn't, he didn't do that in his own life. It happened. God had prepared him, what, to take the gospel all the way over, all around the Mediterranean, didn't he? And here we have the Apostle Paul having access and entree because he had a Roman citizenship. What is your Roman citizenship? Where do you function well that I wouldn't? Or where do I function well? And then collectively, where do we function together as a body, generally, with a lot of different moving parts? 1 Corinthians 12, you hear me quote it often. Everyone in the body, once you love Jesus, is given a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. We need each other. Everyone has a different role. Everyone should be wearing their own armor. Don't try to become someone you're not. You know, the Bible talks often about the, in Proverbs, it says, you know, it's like a rain, a cloud that comes without rain is just like a man who boasts falsely in his gifts. Look, it's no fun to wear somebody else's armor. And yet you say, well, if I'm going to be a Christian, I've got to do this. 
Well, maybe God hasn't called you to that particular role in the kingdom. And what have you tried out? Now, obviously, there are first times for everything. So there was a first time for David to kill that bear and then kill that lion, and he was prepared for Goliath. But he wasn't not in the context of Saul's armor. Look, one of the most beautiful things that you'll ever get once you come to Jesus is that you will discover the true you. Because many of us, we don't know who the true us is. Even we can come to Christianity and we can still be trying to find an identity by writing books and doing this and doing that, even within the Christian community. We can be striving for identity uh, and we don't really know because we're trying to impress people or this or that. I mean, it can happen in ministry, it can happen in your job, it can happen as you've got to be the best mom. And the best. Look, it's fine to be the best mom, but your identity has to be found in Christ. And you always feel like maybe you're putting on masks to try to become something you're not so you fit into the Christian community. One of the, one of the things I think Jesus would just tell us as a church is you can just take a big sigh, just... Just take a big breath and say, it's okay to be you. That doesn't mean that, you know, he's not going to have some amazing task for you to accomplish, but you can still be you. You don't have to wear anybody else's armor. You don't have to wear anybody else's armor. That's one of the nuggets that you get here, and David understood. Simply, David took them off. And off to the battle he goes. Well, we can read the rest of this. You know the story. Verse 40, he took his stick in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had. Even his pouch, loaded with importance there, it's his pouch. It's his, it was his pre- preparation, right? And his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came and approached David and the shield bearer in front of him. Imagine that. Come on, give me a break. Guy's, guy's almost 10 feet tall. He's got all this armor. Here's David down there with a little sling and some, you know, sandals on. Now, Birkenstocks. Well, heaven forbid Birkenstocks. I'm sorry if you got Birkenstocks. But anyway, and, and he looks up, and then here comes a Goliath with all of his armor and his huge sword and everything else and his javelin on it. And a shield bearer. Can you get the picture? I mean, come on. This is really, this is really unbelievable. And it says, and the Philistine looked at David, and he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Philistine cursed David by his gods. He said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the flesh, to the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and remove your head from you. I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky, the wild beasts of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that's awesome. And that that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's. Now, he goes on, what happens? He takes that sling, he runs, he charges the line. He's one shot he's probably got, and it plants right there in his forehead and embeds itself in his forehead. Timber, you know, backwards. He goes over and takes care of the rest of the business. Well, we know the story. 
You know, okay, David and Goliath, great. We preached David and Goliath. I've heard that story, some of you, maybe 5,000 times. I want to take a little different turn on that this morning. Are you ready for this? What if David had missed? And what if Goliath charged and took his head off and they chased down Israel and Israel became their servants? You say, well, that never happens in the Bible. That happened in the Bible all the time. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. We saw Rehoboam and Jeroboam, both of them, and then one of them, you know, the southern part had gone into slavery with some of the Egyptians for a period of time. That's Israel's history, being conquered, conquering, being conquered, conquering, being conquered, conquering. He said, I'm going to ask you a question. So what if? Well, you say, well, there's, you know, there's a lot of things that would have happened. Uh, we wouldn't have this great story in the Bible to help us in our modern-day Goliaths. True. And it's a, it's a stimulating, exciting story, and I've used it many times in my own mind. Let me give you an example. About 17 years ago, I was playing, I only got to play in it once, but the Los Angeles Open. I got to play in the Los Angeles Open, and it was at Riviera, famed Riviera. Tiger missed the cut a couple of weeks ago. See, Tiger missed the cut too. So, um, and I remember going to the PGA Tour Bible study on Wednesday night which was the night before we teed off. And I remember we finished and, and I went out. And if you've ever been to Riviera, it kinda, the clubhouse kind of sits up on a little mountain there. And then you look down, the first tee is a par five and it kind of drops off and you kind of hit it down and it goes. And I can kind of envision that. I was looking at the first tee and I can, I can see you hit my shot down there, hitting it on the green, maybe making a putt for three, make it start with an eagle, that'd be a nice tee. I had it all going, right? This is the Goliath and I'm the David and I can see Lord and I know and boy, how I'll glorify your name, Lord. Oh, I'll, I'll just, I, you know, the media will come to me and I'll tell them it was all about Jesus and I might just, we may break out in revival right here at Riviera. I could picture it all coming and that was what was going to happen. That was going to be my experience at Riviera. Flash forward two days later on Friday, I'm walking up the last hole at Riviera's par four. It's kind of dog legs back up the hill. And then there's this built-in amphitheater of which thousands of people sit. And then on top of that, they add grandstands to the top of that. So I don't know how many people they can get up there, but multiplied thousands for sure. And I, because I'm the last tea time on Friday, and I'm, the, I'm not the dew sweeper. I am the evening, it's the end of the day. And I can just tell you, at L.A., they will flat out serve the beer to the, uh, the fine the folks who come out to watch the L.A. Open. Now, the Genesis Open, I guess. And so they get there, and by the end of the day, it's me, one other Japanese guy, and then actually an Italian guy that was one shot back of the lead. And we were coming up the last hole. I wasn't going to make the cut. The Japanese guy wasn't going to make the cut. They saw our scores, and they just began to mock and ridicule and curse, and they'd been drinking all day, a lot of them. And I remember one statement, he said, Benji, you dog, go home, Benji, you dog, you know, and, I, and, I'm, and kind of my caddy's there, and he, he's not a, a full-time tour caddy, he looks, he says, what should we do? I said, just keep walking, keep your head down and keep walking, just keep walking. And that was my uh, not-so-exciting, well, I'll just put it this way, Goliath took my head off. What happens when Goliath takes your head off? And you don't get that stone firmly planted in his forehead. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, God shows up, and God has showed up many, many times in my life. But there are also times where God, I feel, doesn't show up. Let me ask you the question. Did God fail? Would have God, would God have failed if David had been killed? Now, a lot of things would have changed. 
The Davidic covenant would come a little bit later. We will see here in, uh, in both in Chronicles and it's outlined in Samuel that God made a Davidic covenant, a covenant that one, one somebody from David's throne would, would be the Messiah and would be a light to the nations and all those kinds of things. God would have had to re-strategize which king it would have come through had David gone down. Well, that's true because he hadn't even been made king yet, so how, there wouldn't have been a Davidic covenant. God could have done that. There were no prophecies about a Davidic covenant yet. He could have reacted to this. Uh, this is called anthropomorphism. This is where we apply human characteristics to God because we can't really understand him. And then sometimes the Bible says God changes his mind, and other times it says and God never changes his mind. So which is it? It sounds like a contradiction. Well, sometimes we apply those human characteristics to God, but God had all this figured out, and of course he knew David was going to win. But what if David hadn't? Like Stephen, I'm going to preach my very first sermon and he goes down, he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father, says, Father, receive my spirit. Was God asleep at the wheel? Did, did, did Stephen not know the story, the ancient story of David and Goliath, and if he just had faith and rushed the line and preach, that he'd be protected and that Goliath would go down? Did God fail? Did Paul fail? Did the apostle Paul fail? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what Paul says. This sounds like a failure against Goliath, not a success. Listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse starting in verse 23. He's at first defending his own apostleship. He says, are they servants of Christ? He says, I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors. Can I just tell you? He had to labor. He was a tent maker. Laura and I, for many years, all, all of our girls were born while we lived in somebody's guest house. We drove other people's cars. We, did, we were just, I, I went out and watched backswings, and, and then so I was able to do ministry during this time of year. We did that for years. We were in labor. We were, we were laboring. I was never imprisoned. He was beaten, times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brothers. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? In other words, I feel your pain as I feel many of your pain. Who is led into sin without my intense concern? All right, this sounds like... Now, was, did God fail here? Imprisoned, beaten, stoned? Was Paul in secret sin? And so all that you have to lay down. Here's, here's, my, here's my thought for you. David won this battle and succeeded in God's economy way before he ever began to sling the stone. No different than Stephen when he knew at that moment, all right, I know I can feel the murder in the air, but I am going to preach as I feel led to preach. And Stephen preached a sermon that drove right into their very hearts, and he was stoned to death for it. Did he win and David lose? David lose, he win? 
No, both won. Because the battle is won before you figure out who actually in the scene realm wins or loses. The battle's won when you say, I will follow Jesus. Jesus is my victory. I was on the phone just yesterday, maybe two days ago. Precious couple that are part of our, they're up from the Northwest. She's been struggling with cancer for some time now and breaks my heart. And I didn't know how bad. And I just found out a couple of days ago that she was on hospice now. And so I called, uh, phone calls I both love to make and hate to make. And the family was there and I prayed with the family and it was, it was hard. Is she losing against Goliath? She's not losing. You, you, you saw the, you, you see the very heartbeat. Look, you win the day you connect with Jesus. And all, everything's a win after that. Do you understand that? Whether you lose against a Goliath or win, you win. Everything is win-win in Jesus. All things are working together for your good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. I want you to go now back to Daniel 3. I'm so thankful for this passage in Daniel. Many of you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I love these guys. They, they have some real guts. And Nebuchadnezzar was saying, look, unless he, he had had the conspiracy, but some of his guys said, look, we, you, everybody needs to bow down to the image because they want to get rid of these three Jewish men. And he said, everybody's got to bow down to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And so when all these instruments play... Get everybody to bow down, and then, of course, they didn't, and they, they went and told this to Nebuchadnezzar, and this is the reaction, picking up in verse 16, Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. Stop. God is able. All right, we all get that. I don't think there are many people in there posit God who could speak everything into creation by a spoken word, trillions of galaxies, and say, yeah, but I don't think he can defeat a guy. I'm, come on. We all know God is able, but that's important. God is able. In other words, God exists. If God exists, he's certainly able. God's able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. Now, this sounds to me at first rendering, this sounds like doublespeak. Okay, he's able, but he might not. Okay, I get that. But he says he's able, but then he goes on to say, but he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He will. Well, if he says he will, why does he say, but even if he doesn't? He either will or won't. So are you giving us a prophecy here? No, because these guys didn't know the future no more than you know the future. I don't know the future. I don't know if I'm going to live to be Billy Graham, 99, or if I'm going to live to be 59. I have no idea. I'm going to win whether I live to be 59 or 99 or 109. It doesn't matter. I already win. What I do know is that I can stand in faith and say, the Lord will deliver me. And at the same time, with full confidence and full faith, and at the same time, and say, but even if he doesn't, nothing's going to stop me from worshiping the creator of the universe. Look, 
Your, your maturation level in the kingdom is that deep if every time you have a trial, you're putting God on trial to see whether or not he fulfills your desire to beat whatever Goliath you have. We have to get to the place, folks, to say God can use what appears to be defeat, death, or whatever it is in our life, cancer, whatever, he can use that and explode his kingdom down the road. So back to my other pathetic golf story, the LA Open. So what if I had won that tournament? Have you, been, have you benefited at all from Church of the Red Door? Anybody in here? One person, yeah. So, uh, oh, two, two. <laughs> well... I, I, this is a team. This isn't me. This is, a, this is a massive team that goes on here. But if you've benefited at all from Church of the Red Door, I could have been there. We got our friends, the Gulfs here, and Zach Johnson and Aaron Badley and some of these guys, and they've won tournaments and done different things on the tour. And still, But for whatever reason, Goliath took my head off. But I'm here. Goliath may actually take your life. But something, see, this is so bold to say, look, even in God's economy, if he takes your money, your life, your health, your spouse, something, your, your kid, whatever he does, he does it in love and he's going to work it out. Who can, have that ki- who can have that kind of an audacious way to think about the world? Followers of Jesus, even if he doesn't. Job 13, verse 15, listen to what Job says. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my way before him. And again, I, I hope, Church of the Red Door, pray, prayers, we are people of prayer. And prayer is not just help Bob's knee and help, you know, Tim, Tim's cough and all that kind of thing. That's good. Let's pray for each other's health. But let's go way beyond that. Sometimes it's an argument with God. That's a great prayer. God, I am here. I have been serving you. I've been given faithfully, and I am struggling. And where are you? I don't understand where you are. And Lord, can you just you know, show yourself to me? And I, you know, there's just so much trial that I'm going through. God, where are you in this? And then when you finish, when you finish, fine, just let it out. That's what any real relationship will do, won't it be? Can you have a real relationship and never address issues with your spouse? Can you never have t- moments of argumentation and trying to, you know, vent and have some emotions? I'm not saying anger and throwing things. I'm just saying, can there never? Of course, every relationship has that. The difference between you and God is at the end, what you will say, you say, okay, God, I don't understand where you are. Nevertheless, though you slay me, I'm following you. I came from dust. You, you breathe life into me, and I'll return to dust. You're the creator. I'm the creation. Father, I trust you. Habakkuk, listen to what Habakkuk, the very final words in Habakkuk are this. Verse, chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though, the, though they yield, the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I am going to party in the Lord. I am going to party in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He's made me my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. Now, that does not mean your physical legs. 
I've seen some people in our very congregation that don't have the use of their physical legs anymore. And let me tell you something. They are walking in high places. Paul really kind of begins to wrap this thing. And we're going to close with this thought. Romans chapter 8 is so powerful because he starts in Romans 8 by just saying, uh, look, those who are led by the Spirit, it's, now these are the sons of God. You, 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 am I a Christian? I don't know. I go to church. Or what church do you go to? I'm not so sure about those guys. Let me quit it. I mean, we just have to quit that. You're a Christian if you follow Jesus. You believe in him, you're baptized, and you follow Jesus. That's, those are Jesus people, right? And so once you have that, you're led now by the Spirit, and then he's working all things together. And then he breaks out into this doxology at the end of 8, similarly to what he does in 11, that we had just read. He breaks out in this beautiful thing, seeing God's sovereign plan. I think twice, at least twice, but certainly in Romans 8 and Romans 11, Paul just stops and goes, God, you are unbelievable. I kind of start to get this thing. At, at the moment, I was thinking you deserted me, but listen to what he says, starting here in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, a missed cut at the LA Open, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, just as it is written, and he quotes the Old Covenant, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, not in all these things, catch that, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing at all will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Goliath wins the battle, he only wins it in the temporal. He never wins it in the eternal, ever. That's what we have from Jesus. Even though you die, you'll live. See, that's, those are the kinds of words, and they didn't understand that. They were very entrenched in the stories of David and Goliath, very much understood the stories of David and Goliath to be their prize thing, that Israel always wins. And let me tell you something, it was never the case, as we've seen. We always win in the eternal. We may not win in the moment. We may not be the wealthiest or the most beautiful or the, have, the, have the most successful career, have the best family, but you win as a follower of Jesus. There's probably nobody else uh, that I think of when I think about sustainable, long-term maturation. And I think most of us will be thinking about this over this last week as Billy Graham. Would you agree? 99 years. Now, what really became to my, in first service, obviously I didn't know this, but between first and second service, it was a precious moment. We were out, outside, and, and uh, Jan Turner, who's uh, involved in our compassion ministry, she said, I, that was very moving for me, very important because, and I said, well, why, Jen? And she said, well, my father, a guy named Bill, I think it was Bill Ernie is what she said, was, wrote the very first check for ministry for Billy Graham. In fact, he's had, you know, dinner at our home and different things like that. He started for Youth for Christ. Occasionally, I, get, I have the privilege to speak for Youth for Christ, and 
Bill Wagameth, and who's now the president, and they're trying to return to their roots if you've ever been involved with Youth for Christ. In fact, they're starting to use the Billy Graham back in the 50s, kind of like we're coming back with the gospel. Maybe we veered into the kind of the social responsibility side, which we still do, but now we really want to emphasize the gospel, and that's really been a movement that Youth for Christ has had. And uh, Laura and I have been privileged to go to Colorado and speak on their behalf at various points and been a real thrill to watch that kind of revival even within Youth for Christ. But that's where Billy started. And imagine from that moment, Billy probably had 70 years of powerful, sustainable ministry. Why? You hear the same words always, humility, faithfulness to one woman. There was no multiple divorce. Look, if you've been divorced here, trust me, I can just tell you, there's beautiful grace at, at the cross. But I'm saying once you start your journey is, is that, that desire to honor God and glorify Him important? Absolutely. Absolutely. 70 years of sustainable ministry. You think Billy was prepared through the seasons of his life and understood the times and the seasons? 200 million people plus. 400 of his evangelistic outreaches, 400, over 400. I was at one of them. I'll never forget it. Lubbock, Texas. I don't remember the year. I think it was early 70s, Lubbock, Texas. Jones Stadium, the old Texas Tech Red Raiders, right? And they, they get out there. And for that night, it was no longer a field of combat for guys chasing a pigskin. It was a field of combat for people's souls, I walked that aisle all those years back. I walked it a few times because I needed it every time I did, I think. Uh, I walked that aisle, and I think God saw that. And I think he always has had plans for my life, just like he has for your life. In fact, if you've been in here and you, if you walked an aisle at a Billy Graham outreach, would you raise your hand real quick? Yeah, not quite as many. We had a bunch at first service, a lot a lot of folks. And I talked to my dear friends, the SEALs, both she and her husband, before they were married, Butch, both walked the aisle at a Billy Graham outreach. Look, when I see that, I know I can't put on his armor, but I also know that God's given me a particular thing that's been tested, and he's given you a particular thing, and we have a calling can we live it out like Billy did? Will this still be here 70 years from now? Will Church of the Red Door have a culture of honor and something be created in a, in a voice that goes and it's evangelical voice into the valley? And before I play this last thing, I, I want you to know, I know right now being an evangelical is a political volleyball and nobody wants to have it on their side of the court. And I'm just saying, I am an evangelical and let me define it for you and not let the politicos define it. An evangelical, to me, is someone who cannot keep it to themselves. That's all a true evangelical is. They care about evangelizing the world. And I cannot keep it to myself. I will not keep it to myself. We have a calling in the valley. And maybe around the country. And it is a different world than when Billy Graham was there. But let me tell you something. Well, we have that same spirit that he walked with. Let's watch this in tribute to Billy, and then I'll close this in prayer. 